welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Jessie Sadler, I am so excited to be interviewing you for She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. No worries, Jules. I've been looking forward to it. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. So let's start off by telling everybody what it is that you do, because it's pretty cool. (laughs) Yes. Um, I often ask myself this every morning. Um, I am the founder and um, head of business and growth at Christina Stevens, and we are an adaptive clothing label for people with various disabilities. Um, And so for people who aren't familiar with adaptive clothing, it is um, clothing that we design that that we consider fashion forward and spunky and good looking and um, something that if you or I were wearing, we'd feel proud to wear it and feel good in. Um, But there are minor or major modifications or adaptations um, to the clothing to suit people's different circumstances. So. Um, it might be the cut of the garment, the placement of a seam, uh, swapping out buttons for magnets, um, the textiles that we use, and and all of these modifications are needed um, to suit people's needs if they're in a wheelchair or have limb difference or have sensory requirements. Um, and this is catering for twenty percent of the population of most countries. And um, yeah, it's. I, I'm. I, I am so in love with what you do. Um, I don't think until I met Lisa Cox, who's one of our members who's disabled, and I know um, one of the women who buys your clothing and is a huge advocate for them. Uh, two things startled me. One is I don't think anyone out there, and I again shared the stat last night at an event knows that uh, 20%, 20 to 25% in some countries of the population is disabled because because we just never see people anywhere, firstly. So that's one of my things that I particularly hate is um, is the fact that I think most people think it's 2 or 3% of the population. And that's what I thought until I heard. And so why we're not seeing it everywhere, I don't know. And the other thing that Lisa told me, which just made so much sense and I'd never thought of it, was this adaptive clothing. And she said, in a wheelchair, you want your jackets to be shorter so you can, so that they're not all bunched around your middle and you need your trousers to be longer because you're always sitting down and trousers rise up when you sit down. And I was like, oh, my God, I hadn't thought of that, never mind all the other things. So it's an amazing business you're doing and I hope it takes off around the world. Oh, thanks, Jules. Yeah, we're, we're getting there and um, it's certainly an education process for um, not so much people with disabilities, but the allied health professionals and mainstream fashion um, to, to get their head around this this new category of clothing. Um, yeah. But it is certainly um, yeah, get, getting steam in, in all corners of the globe. Okay, so I have to ask you now, what was the light bulb moment? What was it that made you think, I'm going to go into this space because Apart from anything else, there's a gaping chasm and a and a huge need. <laughs> but um, what was it that sort of tipped you over and made you decide to start the business? Yeah, so I didn't realise the gaping chasm um, when I started <laughs> the business. It was um, 
actually Lisa, um, who's who's now a good friend of mine, um, kind of steered me in that direction. Um, but I started the business after my mum had a fall and um, she smashed both of her elbows and it was really painful and difficult Ow. for her to dress. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, she invests in her wardrobe and, and she's wasn't interested in wearing potato sacks while she had her injury. So um, I just started designing and I, I'm from oil and gas. So this was a bit out of my yeah, field. Yeah, completely out. So, so what? So, oh, I thought you had a fashion background. So you literally just started designing for the hell of it to help your mum. Yeah, and we have we have a friend who is an OT that um, I was kind of working with her on how, how this would work. And um, I was looking at an older demographic of women, um, you know, who, who began to um, live with arthritis or tennis shoulder or, you know, the things that we get as we age. And so that was that was the essence behind the start of the business. And right. Um, yeah. And our friend said, yeah, you've got something there. Just keep working with it. And then, um, I was told by network between network, have you met Lisa Cox? And I was no. And so I wrote to Lisa and I just out of the blue introduced myself and what I was doing. And we met and she said, what you're doing is fantastic. If you want to, you know, swing a bit, um, I think that sounded terrible, but if you want to swing your business a little bit, <laughs> she'll love that, listening to that. Yeah, I know. Um, I was just thinking she would get a giggle out of that. I was trying to avoid the word pivot, which is just overused. But um, If you I'll, want to change direction. Yes, thank you. Um, a bit. the This type of clothing would suit the disability market and is hugely underserviced. Um, no. And so I put out my first collection um, in 2020 with the launch of the business and then the second collection, um, I narrowed the, the target audience um, even further and as I understood better the different um, conditions that people live with that are disabled in various capacities. Yeah. And then our third collection was, um, I guess, a celebration of Carol Taylor and I joining forces um, early last year before we debuted in the first adaptive runway in Australian Fashion Week. And Carol is a, a quadriplegic herself. She's a lawyer, artist, um, and very interested in fashion. So um, we, we've we've started a beautiful friendship and beautiful partnership. And what she brings to the table is unparalleled in this space because she lives with um, quadriplegia and the underlying conditions every day. Um, so she's taken the lead in design and production side of the business and um, yeah. I, I'm here to try and get the word out there and make the business grow. And while we always tread on each other's toes, we they're, they're kind of the, the two functions that we look after within the business. Absolutely amazing and I love it that you have a quadriplegic designer as well. That's just absolutely perfect. So um, tell me though, why Christina Stevens? Where does the name come from? Uh, so when I started looking at um, clothing for disability, um, Tommy Hilfiger had had just started um, yeah. or launched his adaptive label. And oh, I didn't know he had one. He, did, he does, yeah, yep. Um, he's kind of a leader in mainstream fashion um, in, in terms of having an adaptive clothing offshoot to his business. Oh, good on and that, that, that's due to his own family story. Right. Um, and now where was I going with that? You were talking about why you called it Christina Stevens. 
Oh, that's right. Um, and so I was looking at what else was in the market and a lot of it was very clinical sounding business names or labels or even patronising. Like fashion med or something, <laughs> something like, like yeah, that. I don't, I don't want to name them because I'm probably going to name a competitor. But, um, you know, and it's changing. But, yeah, it was it was like, I don't know. Um, but it was coming from more the medical side than the fashion side. It was or just constantly reminding people that um, – they had an injury or they had a disability in the name of the label. And I was like, well, if I was, if I was looking for fashion to um, kind of pick me up or to empower me, I would want a designer sounding label, something like um, Mark Jacobs or Tommy Hilfiger. So um, those two names are my mum and my dad's first names put together. And that was, I, I didn't share that story a lot until people, started asking where the name came from, but it just made the business a bit more personal to me um, yeah, and nice. obviously still is. Um, and I think, yeah, we've been able to avoid the, the trap of um, patronising or medical-sounding brand names. And I think, and I think um, at, you know, to talk about some of the things that Lisa's trying to do as well, there are so many people who are so worried about upsetting people that they just don't do anything. So there's nothing in the space... That uh, so it's so great, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That you are going into this space because it's so badly needed, I think. And and I just had no idea. And you know, I just think there's a whole world out there in disability land that um, most of us are just completely unaware of. And and yet, as soon as you find out, you kind of go, well, yeah, that makes enormous sense. So I love it that you've called it after your mum and dad, but also that it's got that kind of classy fashion label kind of vibe to it. Um, okay, so what I'm going to do now, Jesse, if it's all right, is we're going to go right back to when you were a little girl, and I want to hear about basically your life and your career and how you've come to where you are now. So I love saying this to people because everyone goes, oh, my God, I haven't thought about this for years, but cast your mind back to when you were a little girl and tell me where did you grow up, what did your mum and dad do, and do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I grew up in Corumba in the Gulf of Carpentaria in the 80s. Um, oh, hang which, on. Wow. Is that way uh, up sort of between Darwin and Cairns or something? Yeah, exactly. And wow. The, the oh, wow. Of, I didn't know that. Okay, go on. Um, and so that's where all barramundi boats and prawn trawlers and um, right. th- that kind of part of the world um, or that, that, that ind- those industries was home to Karumba. So it was right. a bit Wild West in the 80s, as you could imagine. Um, <laughs> yes. My mum and my dad had the slipway and an engineering company in Corumba, so they would refit the boats that, that come in from while they're out at sea for months Amazing. and then come in for repair. Um, so both are running their own business, which is kind of, a, you know, a great role model, I think, for for those of us who are younger as we're growing up to watch what's happening with our parents. Yeah, so I, I think I've, I've always been um, brought up or surrounded by entrepreneurial parents or step-parents and my, my my parents did separate when I was about 10 and mum remarried and um, they also then ran um, a shipping business, a cargo business. Um, okay. So, so I have kind of been in that space since since I was a young kid. Um, right. I, nice. So I don't have any brothers and sisters um, through mum and dad but um, stepsisters as, as a result of parents remarrying. Oh, wow. Very cool. 
So what were you like at school? Did you enjoy school? We'll start with primary and go through to secondary. Tell me a little bit about what that was like for you. Uh, yes, yeah, so I really enjoyed primary school in Cranborough. I think we had um, 30 or 40 kids in the entire school. Oh, so it was gorgeous. pretty loose and, um, you know, a nice way to grow up. It was warm, sometimes too warm, but, yeah, it was a very free and um, safe environment school and outside of school to to grow up in because it was small it was a community um then I, I tell this story I when my mum and dad separated and she moved to Cairns um I was yeah. waiting to get into a school over there in Karamba we we could get away with wearing t-shirt and knickers and those shoes to school and um <laughs> I have a school photo of me dressed as such but, um, That's so idyllic sounding uh, when I then moved to Cairns and um, I, I moved into a Anglican school, formal uniform, black leather shoes, oh um, you know, pre-arranged, pre-arranged play dates with friends and not on school days, only on weekend type things. So that was a big shift for me. I bet, <laughs> um, my goodness. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed school. I did. I um, that, that, But that shift was quite confronting at that age yeah I bet that does uh, sound really big um, I mean especially after such a, a a lovely kind of yeah loose younger childhood to be put into that kind of a formal school situation how did you go were you any good at school I was good at school um like academically and I and I did get stuck into things so I remember when I was 10 I started the uh, cancer council club with three young girlfriends um I was editor of the school newspaper. I, I, I project managed a runway for the school fate. So I was always had my fingers in you pies. Did. Um, did. Okay, so so did you go through to year twelve? I did. Well done. And what was the what was the next move? Was it sort of I'm I'm going to go to uni or I'm going to get out there and work? Uh, I I think we all had the, including me, had the uh, vision that I was going to go to uni after school. And when I say we, I mean parents. Um, And I did try immediately. I came down to Griffith at Brisbane and spent six months here and went, no, don't dig this. What didn't you like about it? Uh, It was, um, I started an international relations degree and it was. Oh, yeah, my son did that. Lasted about three months, I think. Oh, well. Okay, so I did three months longer than him. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd love to hear his thoughts, but for me it wasn't hands-on enough. It was a little bit too academic in terms of um, it wasn't about country's trade. It was more about political and diplomatic history Um, and that that wasn't quite where my head was or what what I wanted. So I went back up to Cairns. I worked for... My parents in their livestock export business for six months. Yeah. And then I went down to Sydney to UTS and I studied international business instead of international relations and that, that suited oh, me a lot better. Yeah. And so to go from um, Corumban or whatever the name of the place was up the top to Cairns and down to Sydney, I imagine that was a bit of a shock to the system, was it? I couldn't wait, actually, to, <laughs> to, to get out of Cairns um, at 17 um, yep. Yeah, my mum and I laugh about it because you hear about um, children who are still with their parents when they're 30, 35, <laughs> and she said, I was never going to have that problem. You lot were so keen to to fly the coop. Um, it's so yeah, funny. but yeah. It, it was a big city. It was a big change. Um, 
and but but I really loved it. I enjoyed living in Sydney. Okay, so uh, you finished your course, and what what came next? What was the first job out of uni? Uh, teaching English in South Korea. Oh my God, you are just full with of surprises. So, how did that come about? Um, I think I was very green out of a business degree and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, yeah. And the irony is I'd studied Japanese for nearly 15 or 20 years from primary school throughout uni to throughout uni and um, I ended and up teaching English in South Korea. <laughs> that is so funny because I my last interview before you was a woman who's Korean and she was one of the first two families ever in Australia. Oh, wow. <laughs> And was talking about what that was like. She was an only child as well. Um, uh-huh. Well, but, I, I knew nothing about South Korea before I was on the plane to go. Um, so, But why? Did, how did it come up? Was it just a school exchange thing or? No, I replied out of the newspaper. Uh, okay. They were just looking for English speakers. Um, and we'll yeah, train you on the rest kind of thing. Yeah. Just, you just needed a university degree. Wow. Okay, so how was that, like arriving in Korea with, when you don't know the language at all? Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> how, tell, well, Tell me how it, it was. What was it Korea, like? Well, because I was working for English schools, um, was it you know, bad? my direct colleagues were, were fine with English. Um, yeah. But there was a hiccup because I did get picked up at the airport by, um, they're called Hagwon is the English school, um, yeah. school in Korea, and the principal picked me up and I had finished uni but I hadn't graduated and so I didn't Uh-oh. have the certificate yeah right. <laughs> so oh. um, I had a visa issue immediately um, landing in South Korea and um, so that took a while to nut out and while that was being nutted out they thought that I was too high risk to be in the country on a, a tourist visa instead of a working visa so I moved to another hard one in another city and um, eventually everything worked out, but it was a bit of, bit of stumbling for the well, first guess, couple of months. Yeah, bet. And I guess my idea of Korea, uh, uh, not unlike Japan and China, is that they don't really like rule breakers there. So exactly. I, I imagine that you probably really it gave them a bit of a headache with not having that certificate. Yes, yes, I'm sure I did. But um, the... The second school that I went to was, um, I guess, a little bit more liberal in their thinking and, and were looking forward to me staying at the school so they worked with me while we worked through that issue. Wow, what a great experience just straight out of out of um, the box, really. So how long yeah. did you last over there? I was in South Korea for a year and then I went to Phnom Penh in Cambodia to teach for uh, four months after that before I came home and had to start getting real. Okay, so so what was that really? Do you see that as sort of part of your gap here, or what was it that? What was the compulsion to go and to a non English speaking country and then keep going? Uh, I I think I've always had a tra- travel bug in me. I studied international business for a reason, and I studied right. languages for a reason. I just I, I like the difference in other cultures and languages. I've always travelled and. Um, so I didn't really stop. When I was at uni, I, I did an exchange program in Malaysia um, and then backpacked oh, right. around Southeast Asia for a few months after that. Um, so I've, I've been on the go overseas pretty much since I started uni and yeah, right. love it. 
Yeah, I, I have the same bug, so I completely get it. In fact, I'm just insanely jealous of these stories, really. <laughs> Although mine was, I sort of went to Ireland and did um, European type stuff, but yours sounds much more exciting. So when you came back from Cambodia, as you said, coming back to reality, did you come to back with a bit of a bump? And what did you do next? Uh, I worked in a butcher deli fruit shop in Paddington for about a year. <laughs> right. Um, so I've never had a smooth career pathway. <laughs> like, oh, no, well, that's lovely. If, I mean, if, uh, half of the point of these interviews is to show people that it is very, very rarely a straight line that says, this is what I did. But I love it. Yours is, I love the travel. And then coming back and ending up working in a butcher shop when you've done two years of languages and teaching. <laughs> well, it was great. It You know, it was great. It, the people were great. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was, I was. Was it endearingly referred to as the butcher bitch, but I was meant to be part of the deli. Um, oh, good. So and this it was, is Paddington in Sydney, I'm assuming, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it was a lot of fun. And then I, I started working, managing cafes and restaurants and then went down to Melbourne to manage a, a small um, business of three restaurants down there. Hang on, uh, hang on. You can't keep whizzing through. So now you've gone to freezing cold Melbourne uh, and I live here. So I don't think it's freezing cold, but I know anyone from Queensland does. And you were from far north Queensland. So how how was Melbourne for you? I mean, was it just part, took it in your stride and part of the travel or did you find it difficult? Oh, no, I love Melbourne. Um, I stayed indoors a lot. You're right. It was very <laughs> cold, confronting for me. But, um, yeah, no, I really enjoyed my time down there. It was pretty short-lived. It was only... Um, I think 10 or 12 months. Um, okay. And then well, I went back to, up to, to have a bit of a winter and know what it's like to sleep under a doona instead of a sheet. Oh, I sleep under doonas in cans. <laughs> like, oh <my>. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I hate to think how many doonas you would have had to be under in order to stay warm down here. So, um, so what happened after Melbourne? Um, gosh, you're jogging my memory now, but, um, I know it's good. Trying to think in that linear path can be really difficult. Uh, I then joined the Australian Institute of Export, which was more in my degree field. Um, I was their national education manager. So I did, um, design and delivery of short courses in export. And then, and then I moved on to Invest Australia, which is federal government investment agency, and then we were rolled into Austrade, um, where I which is the the Australian government's marketing international trade agency. Yeah. Um, so and now so, you're much more using the skills I guess that you got for your degree. Yes, eventually, much to my mother's pleasure. But but also <laughs> working for the government, which is about as far as you can get from entrepreneurship as possible in terms of no agility, not being able to sort of, you know, um, move fast anyway and break rules. So how, how did you enjoy your time there? Well, it's funny you should say that because that's what I always thought working for a government agency would be like. Yeah. But the CEO at the time was out of industry and um, he right. he had a pretty cool vision for the head of a government agency and I was also fortunate enough to um, be working in a team um, once the 
just after the Rudd government came into power and the world of carbon market and renewable energy started to explode. Oh, yeah. So I worked in a really innovative new space, even though it was within governments and um, our responsibility was to attract foreign investment um, to build Australia's carbon market and renewable Ooh, sector. Exciting. Right. So I love that. So there was travel involved. There was innovative um, industry involved. It was new. Um, I could see. No rules to be broken because there weren't any rules because it was oh, so new, that, I guess. Well, you know, it was government. There were <laughs> rules to be broken. And if they were going to be broken, of, of course, it would be me breaking them. But, um, yeah, I was fortunate that I was part of that team and had a really great boss. Um, and we achieved a lot of good things in that in that time. Right. So by this stage, roughly how old are you? I mean, is this is this taking you through to your late twenties, early thirties or Yes. Yep. Okay. So so okay, so what made you leave the government, the Austrade job, and why? What did you do next? Um, I was posted over in Italy with them for on covering a maternity leave position and when I had to come back to Australia I wanted to come back to Brisbane, not Sydney, yeah. because all of my right. family are up here. Yeah. Um, and they weren't going to support a transfer. There was a new CEO coming in and for many reasons um, I had to stay in Sydney to do my job or had to leave, so I decided to leave. Um, and yeah. I moved to Brisbane without a job and found one when I got here and so this chapter of my life started when I was 32. Right. And so what was what was the job that you got? I'm guessing this is going to lead to Christina Stevens, but what, what did you do when you got to Brizzy? Uh, I was a um, business analyst in a gas, oil and gas pipeline company. Okay. Right. And, and that brings us neatly back to um, starting the business. Yes. When I left APA um, or left that role, it was – when I was on my second maternity leave with Louis and mum's accident, my um, disdain for large corporates, my by that time, <laughs> my um, I, I, I knew I had an entrepreneurial streak and eventually wanted to work for myself. I was just waiting for what? Um, and then right. so all of the stars aligned um, at, at that time when I was on oh, maternity leave. I'm so leave. glad they did. I'm so glad they did. It's so needed and I even just I can't wait to start promoting this podcast just because I think there's so many people who are unaware of um of the market and as Lisa Cox keeps telling us there's a lot of money there as well it's not like it's just a market where um you know you're offering charity this is <clears throat> a lot of these people are working and a lot of them have also got payouts and and of course like the rest of us they've got requirements so I absolutely love what it is that you're doing um let talk to me a little bit about what it's like running a business. So, how long have you had it for, roughly? Uh, we launched in March 2020. Oh, that's right. So, yep. So, quite, quite new. So, <clears throat> but you've also had the pandemic, which of course has kind of changed it. Will it? Mind you, I was in Melbourne. You were in Queensland. I did go up to Queensland and didn't feel like there was a pandemic at all up there. Yeah. But <laughs> what did you? Um, have you had times during the course of building the business where you've had to do a massive change of direction? I won't use the word pivot. Um, and at the time you've thought, what am I actually going to do? But it's led you into areas that you're really happy about. Have you had any or just any ups and downs? I just like to share that it's 
not always smooth sailing when you start your business either. No, and I think we hear of the the overnight wonders that you know make their first yes. million in a week, and that, that they're the they're the headers, the news headers. But I think, in fact, reality real. it's very rarely how it happens. Yeah. Um, we we launched business in 2020 right when lockdowns were starting in Australia, and everything was in motion. We had stock, so there was no point pulling back at that that stage. But okay. Our processes had to change really quickly. Um, the way that we designed, interacted with pattern makers, production managers and production teams. Oh, yes, that kind of thing. And then were you always uh, going to sell it online or, or were you planning on bricks and mortar stores? Did that get affected as well? No, we were always selling. We started just online with our own platform. Right. Um, it was just supply chain that we had to manage Um but fortunately, our first collection was designed and produced in Australia, so we didn't have the international bottlenecks that a oh, lot of other businesses faced. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, and the pricing that, that seemed to just triple, I think someone told me, their containers were costing them triple what it was prior to the lockdown, so lucky about that. Yeah, and just getting getting cargo in. Um, yeah, I have, I've heard a lot more um, horror stories than what we certainly went through. And because we were new, a lot of these changes in the the business landscape, they were changes to other people, but it was just the way that we had to do business from the get-go. Um, so fortunately there are, there are some silver lining um, around COVID for us because our processes had to become very agile, efficient and digital-based very quickly for us to continue right. operating. Right. So how do you build up um, a market when you're brand new? And I really feel like you're one of the Tommy Hilfiger maybe was doing some. And obviously, if you are disabled, you're probably much more informed. But how did you get the word out about what you were doing? I mean, how do you start to build that market? Um, well, you have an we email did. list? We do. We did. Which, right. which is different now. But um, so originally it was um, Brisbane-based, like the conversations we're having. I met Lisa. We were working with nursing groups, groups um, allied health professionals. Okay, that makes sense. And um, then the fact that NDIS would be very supportive. NDIS was, in fact, very supportive of what we were doing as a business to start with um, and yeah. were able to... Um, nice to hear a positive story about them, actually. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. <laughs> um, but that they are integral to our business and, and our customers um, in living a, a higher standard of living that otherwise they, they wouldn't have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I am very thankful for um, Julie and people in the NDIS who helped us with some marketing and exposure and also guidance um, around how our clothes could be funded. Fantastic. Um, and then you've you've got a quirky marketing thing, I think. I'm pretty sure I've seen it on social media that you are naming the clothes after sort of key people that have helped you or that have a bit of profile in the industry. Is that right? That's right, yep. Because Natasha Price is another woman that I've um, interviewed and I think you've got those clothing. So how did that idea, was that part of the, you know, how are we going to get it out there? Um, It was... I think where we have had success in our business is building a tight community around the business and okay. I think identifying people 
um, with disabilities that have a high, high profile or more importantly are achieving really cool things um, and uh, advocating for others with disability um, yeah, no. is the kind of profile we wanted to include in our business. And so we have the Natasha Physio Leggings that are out with this latest collection. We have the Lisa um, Raglan Teeth, Lisa Cox. We've got some really hot jeans coming out. We've named them after Dr. Dinesh Palapana. So um, it was a little bit of um, how we wanted to reflect our business and to thank those around us that were doing such good things um, to raise their profile but to also keep things a bit more meaningful um, within our business and, again, less functional. So rather than calling something, which I have done before, um, the Leaf Back T-shirt, uh, it's now the Lisa Raglan tea and and that has a bit more meaning I think to everyone. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that's a really lovely model and um and so um moving forward now, what's gonna be next for Christina Stevens? Where do you want to see it go? Uh, we, domination? <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically it. <laughs> Um, that's the answer Carol gives every time she's asked that question. So I just nod, but, um, yes, good. we, we are gaining traction with, um, wholesaling, which is important so that our distribution channels are wider. Yeah. Um, it's largely in, um, the disability retail space at the moment, although we are also on the iconic, um, and kudos, oh, brilliant. kudos to them for picking adaptive clothing yeah. up as a category. Um, we would love to see or love to be in one of the mainstream bricks and mortars like a Maya or a Big W um, because when we, we've done industry surveys where the feedback from the participants is this is where I can't currently shop and I need to adapt the clothing from. Um, so right. that's either access or a price point uh, no, thing that you need to take notice of. Um, yeah. And I think just the retail experience more generally, the current model inhibits our customers from getting out there and having lunch with family and friends and going for a shop and try stuff on. And, you know, the, the retail therapy yeah. experience you and I, you and I enjoy, um, we, we want to see that expanded so that our customer base can enjoy that too. So, yes, to answer your question, global domination – but step by step through um, wholesaling and wider distribution, uh, and also we're we're looking at some very exciting uh, new products for different segments of the disability community at the moment. So hopefully um, people will be able to see that soon. Oh gosh, I hope so, and I really hope that there's some. And I'm just going to put it out there that there's some great women listening who maybe have those connections in retail and can connect you to get you into those sort of more mainstream stores as well as what you're doing because I 100 million percent am behind what you're doing and I think it's so important that we don't make it special school and different. We make it, you know, part of the mainstream that there's just we've got clothing for petite people, we've got large clothing, why haven't we got clothing for disabled people? Just that's right and that's our exact message. Sense. That's right, yep. Yeah, um, yeah, oh, fantastic. Um. Okay, so here's a question for you as a female founder. And I asked this question because I've now interviewed, I think, about 250 women. Um, wow. And <laughs> what? Yeah, I know, I know. I can't stop myself. 
Um, and one of the things that has come across time and time again is how hard we drive ourselves because we've got this passion about what we're doing. And the next thing is burnout is is kind of, you know, around the corner. So my question to you is how are you avoiding that? And so how are you juggling the working week? Do you give yourself time out? Um, I'll be very honest with you. I've had bumpy up and down burnout since I started. <laughs> so, um, right. No, well, that makes sense. So you know, have you put it's... something into place now to say weekends are mine or, um, you know, I'm not going to work after six o'clock at night or anything like that? Yes, yes, that's – well, yes. Uh, <laughs> <like> I have... <laughs> that's like, the rule, but you're I'm, breaking I'm, the rules. <laughs> I'm about to give a heap of BS here, but, um, no, I do – like there, there, there have been periods while I've been running the business. I'm a single mum of two young kids under eight as well, um, and so, so managing um, the kids and being able to spend time with them like I want to, as well as the business, you really need to be disciplined in drawing a line. Um, you do. And yes, weekends are mine now, unless we have an event or something on. Um, yeah, and... I think that that's that's smart. I, I was a single mum, and I have three, including twins, um, and and I know it's a really hard juggle. Ironically, Jesse, I'm just going to do a little shout out for Kate Toon. I was um, emceeing her book launch last night, which is called um, "How to Build a Six oh, What Is It Six Fish uh, Building a Six Figure." business as a parent basically anyway you should look out for it because oh, she's got okay. a whole lot of strategies on how to build your business and have the time with the kids but it is absolutely a juggle no doubt Kate Toon she is in SEO land isn't she or she Google is in SEO yeah. land and digital yeah. marketing land yep but oh god why, why can't I think of the name of her book I was there six figures in school hours that's what it's called oh well I'll be keen to read that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, look, it look it, whatever way you look at it, it's hard. And there is guilt both sides, I think, when you kind of are trying to give the kids time and then you're thinking, oh, my God, but I need to be working on the business. But it's just take each day at a time and, um, and go but, read that book and you'll get lots of tips. Yeah, the other thing that I would say to listeners is it, it's not just the business or the kids. It's also you need to fit yourself yeah. in there too. Yeah. Um, and that that's that's really important whether it's with exercise or you just go get a facial every now and then or something just for you um yeah to to st- stop the brain for a while yeah i agree and um one of the things um oh god i've forgotten what i was going to say now hang on i was uh uh doesn't matter i'll think of it in in a few minutes okay i've got another one last question for you um and it's a quirky one but it is, is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? And it can be anything. Oh, God. And that, I question is, that, that question <laughs> is best directed at close people around me because they would be able to tell you what, what is quirky about me. Um, well, the fact that you love languages, how many languages can you speak? Oh, just two. English and Japanese would be a bit rough. Um, my Italian and Spanish is terrible, but I gave it a go. And a smidge um, of Korean. You must know a little uh, bit. I was pretty good at Korean while I was there. I think there's a lot of similarities between the structure of Korean and Japanese that made it easier right. for me. Um, uh, look, I, I am a bit offbeat. I'm a bit um, – I, I 
can speak out of turn. I can say the wrong things. I can, but I, 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 mean, I, you I just sound like a perfect woman to me. That's I'm exactly very upfront and, like. and honest, and I, I think what you see is what you get. And sometimes that's that's a lot for people. It, yes, can be for some people, but you know they have to deal with it. We don't have to worry about that. That's so it. I'm del- yeah. I'm absolutely delighted to hear all of those things. You're ticking all my boxes anyway. So, oh, Jesse, I just want to say how amazing you are, how if there is anything I can ever do to help you get the word out, I'm going to do it. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, and I hope they do, um, and I'm sure that with with that percentage of the population disabled um, or identifying as disabled anyway, and that doesn't include it. I mean, I, my partner's only got one hand. And he does. He won't even talk about being disabled. So there'd be a whole lot more than people actually think. I think. Um, well, like on that point, when you look at that figure, twenty percent, there's invisible disabilities in that. There's, yes. there's autism. Yeah. There's intellectual. But outside of that, there's also people with arthritis and tennis shoulder and um, chronic disease that aren't included in that twenty percent. So it's it, it is a large figure, and it does cover um, a diverse part of the market. Yeah, it's it's just brilliant what you're doing. So tell everybody how can they buy your clothes, and if they wanted to get in hold of you because they can give you an introduction to someone at Woolworths or something, what's the best way for them to do that? So our email direct that would come through to me is hello at christinastevens dot com dot au. Yeah. Uh, our social handles are shop Christina Stevens. And our website is christinastevens.com.au. Fantastic. And one last thing, which will completely date this, but it sounds like you're on Instagram if you were talking about handles because I'm not an Instagram person, but have you tried threads, which came out yesterday, I think? Oh, I'm not the person to ask. (laughs) (laughs) I'll ask Kiersha, but thanks for the heads up. (laughs) Yeah, Instagram have just built their own Twitter, for want of a better way of putting it, and it came out yesterday. And there's 30 million people on it today, or it came out two days ago, and there's already 30 million on it. So, wow. Um, so, it's going to start a little bit of a fight, I think, between um, the yeah. founder of Facebook, Zuckerberg, and the fan, and you know, the, the owner who's driving down Twitter of Elon Musk. But anyway, yeah. let the boys fight amongst themselves. I love <laughs> what you're doing, Jesse, and um, I can't wait to see your fashions hit the mainstream. But um, it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful what you're doing. So, thank you. Uh, not at all. Thank you for the lovely um, words and of support, Jules. And this has been a really fun podcast. Great. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au.